This is from Amos chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole chapter. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailing in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, what will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? That we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and then sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentations. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. This is the word of the Lord. I pray that we'll be able to hear it today. Thank you, Amos. At this time, uh, if you'll join me for the benediction. No. <laughs> wow. So for those of you that don't know me, my name is Wayne. I am a part of the Eau Claire small group uh, that's transitioning to the City Refuge Church plant. And I'm grateful to God to be here, and I really don't need to say much else behind that. <laughs> um, I will start off by saying this, though. I actually have a fond memory of fruit baskets. Um, in my old church, uh, fruit baskets were given out to like church leaders and members to kind of thank them for a job well done. It was a way to kind of commemorate them for what they'd done and to basically kind of give them a pat on the back and to encourage them to continue doing what they're doing. They probably didn't even like the fruit in the basket, but that wasn't the point. They were encouraged by what the fruit basket symbolized. Brings back fond memories for me, seeing the smiles on the faces of those people who received them. That joyful feeling was the exact opposite of what Amos felt when God presented him a fruit basket. This fruit basket wasn't a pat on the back or an attaboy to tell you to keep up the good work. This was God's way of saying to Amos and to Israel, I'm done. Done. More specifically, I'm done sparing you. The end of this nation as you know it has come. I'm shutting it down. No more. How you like them apples? 
<laughs> Look, we got to laugh to keep from crying in the midst of all this. Look, I want to say before we delve deeper, for those of you that are fatigued from this sermon series, I get it. It can be exhausting getting hit right between the eyes week after week after week after week, especially considering we have to deal with 2020 and all its loveliness. Do you know what, though? Um, little by little, my exhaustion is slowly starting to morph into hope and a sober appreciation for God's judgment. Because sometimes we have to sit and stew in the harsh realities of our sin and brokenness in order to properly move forward. Some changes God wants us to make, they require a complete end to the way things were. And that takes more than a quick fix or a sermon or two. So back to this whole summer fruit thing. Uh, how in the world does a fruit basket represent the end of a nation? Um, it must have struck Amos as pretty odd for God to announce the end of Israel with a basket of summer fruit. Amos, on top of him being a herdsman and a shepherd, he was also a gatherer of sycamore figs. This is what he did for a living. So a basket of summer fruit to him would have just been the last fruit harvest before fall. It was basically a temporary ending to a season, not a permanent end to a nation. Some scholars also connect the image of a basket of summer fruit with Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 through 10. And I'll just read verses 1 through 2 in Deuteronomy 26. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket. And you shall go to the place that your Lord God will choose to make his name to dwell there. Now, the next few verses basically kind of talk about how the fruit it was presented to God as a way to reflect on him delivering them from Egypt. It was supposed to be represent, representative of remembrance, not of an end. Here's why this play on words is so brilliant. The Hebrew words for summer fruit and end actually sound the same. So when God presents Amos with this basket of fruit and then says the end has come, it sounds like he's saying the same two words. What was once meant to commemorate deliverance now signifies doom. The thing is also that summer fruit is already ripe. So it doesn't have much time before it goes bad, which again just points how close Israel is to the end. The years of Israel's promise and grace had nearly run out. Her place of privilege was all but gone. Israel was about to reap a final harvest for their sins that they wouldn't recover from. And God was about to gather the last crop Israel would produce. And then we come to this nice imagery of, you know, dead bodies everywhere. <laughs> oh, I love the Bible. Um, instead of songs of rejoicing over the harvest, because that, that typically that's what would happen in the temple. When, when, when harvest came, you would typically have this time of jubilation, of celebration. Right? Look what God has done again. We have this opportunity to celebrate this harvest. Nah. This time it's wailings. This harvest doesn't bring an assurance of continued life. It's a death knell. Dead bodies everywhere. It points to the devastation of Israel's demise, which actually occurred in 721 BC. And then, silence. Silence, because 
God's no longer listening. He's no longer hearing the cries. They're wailing. They're making all this noise. They're making all this fuss. And God's like, all right, let me know when you're done. Get it out your system. And then he immediately goes into, hear this, you who trample on the needy. I'm done listening, now you listen. You who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. Once again, social and economic injustice is brought up. Side note, it's very interesting to me how much social justice is harped on in Scripture, yet many in the American church are so eager to move past it. We want to change the subject as soon as it's brought up. If you're tired of hearing about it, think about how tired God is of seeing it. Some scholars believe also that verses 4 through 6 may have actually been directed towards a specific trader's guild that was largely responsible for corrupting the entire commercial-slash-economic system. It would kind of be comparable to Wall Street now, as far as like the influence that it has economically, financially on the nation. So greedy merchants in this, in this part of the, pet, the text, that they were impatient with the Sabbath and with religious festivals because it meant closing shop. They couldn't make money while churchy stuff was going on. When will church be over so I can get back to my business? When will small group be done so I can check my work emails? <laughs> and we, we may not say these things outwardly or explicitly, but what do our hearts say? How do our actions betray us? And it doesn't even have to be money. Pick your poison. What is it that worship actually gets in the way of for us? For these merchants, it was greed. They were eager to get back to cheating the poor. Making the effort small basically equated to decreasing the value of what they sold. Making the shekel great means they increased the price of the merchandise. So you're, you're selling stuff to people at inflated prices while decreasing the value of what they get. It's classic greed. And aside from that, they were buying people with silver and selling them for a pair of sandals. This was also referenced in Amos 2 and 6. And they were even selling chafe. Chafe is basically, as, as Amos pointed out so brilliantly, it basically equated to rotten wheat. And they're selling it to these poor people knowing that they're going to buy it anyway just because they're trying to survive. And in verse 7, God says, essentially, I'm not going to forget this. I've sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget any of your deeds. Now, many scholars agree that the phrase, the pride of Jacob, is basically another title for God. So this is God literally saying, I'm swearing by myself that I'm not going to forget what you've done. Another side note, I feel like this is a sobering reminder to us that time itself doesn't erase sin. I don't know why, but this seems to be the thought process of those who dismiss things like racial injustice here in America because of how long ago slavery was. Time itself does not erase sin. God doesn't forget, at least in the literal sense, but he does forgive. If we repent and allow our sins to be covered, by the atoning work of Jesus. But time itself doesn't do this. Something for us to think about. And then we get to this earthquake. 
this, it's just kind of getting worse and worse, you know. Um, Shall not the land tremble, verse 8, on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again? Natural disaster, as we've seen, is often used to symbolize God's judgment. But Amos here was actually alluding to a literal earthquake. There was literally an earthquake that hit Israel at that time. And in verse 9, he, he alludes to an eclipse, which it's, it's well documented that June 15th of 7, 763 B.C., an eclipse actually did happen. All of these are just sombering, not just symbols, but occurrences that speak to God's judgment. And after that, you have to deal with the aftermath. In verse 10, he says, I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. It's interesting that this is kind of a reversal of Psalm 30 and 11, where David was saying, you've turned my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. God's kind of doing the opposite here. It's like the ultimate rebuttal. Your feasts will turn into mourning, your songs into lamentation. I'll make you wear sackcloth now. There'll be baldness on every head. No more good eating, no more singing, no more dancing. Sackcloth and baldness for everybody. <laughs> and sackcloth and baldness, by the way, were two of the deepest signs of grief back then. And I'll make your mourning like the loss of an only son. Think about that as a parent, the parents that are in here. You having to loss or mourn the loss of your only son. That son that you had hopes for a future in. Think about that. And the morning will be like, at the end of it, it'll be like a bitter day. So it doesn't even get better with time. This grief, this go around, the end of it will just be another bitter day. It's not going to get better with time. And then we have the nail in the coffin. This is the, the ultimate judgment. Now, all the other stuff was, was terrible. I get it. But it pales in comparison to this. The days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. The ultimate judgment for Israel would basically be the shutting of God's mouth. The famine of God's word. Literally a 400-year silent treatment. Now, I've been married to my wife about 13 years. I can think of nothing worse that she can do to me than give me the silent treatment. It's terrible. And I know that sounds like, Wayne, come on, get, get over it. Like, you, you're talking about all this judgment, earthquakes, eclipses, and then you bring up your wife's silent treatment. It's bad to me. <laughs> but but th think about this in a larger context. Y'all stop playing. We in church. Think about this. Um, what, what I feel in that moment when my wife gives me the silent treatment is helplessness. I don't know what's going through her mind. I don't know what she might be plotting. <laughs> I, I have no idea of what to do or what she's thinking. And on top of that, there are no clues to help me along the way. It is an utterly helpless feeling. 
Imagine God saying to his people, I'm done talking. Y'all don't want to listen, I'm going to give you what you want. They didn't listen to the Lord when they had the chance, and now there would be no chance to listen to him at all. He says, those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, verse 14, the guilt of Samaria can basically be equated with idolatry. So Israel, essentially what God is saying is, you're not going to have the luxury of running to and fro to your other idols. They may have given you some temporary satisfaction in times past because once you finally did turn back to me, I relented, restored you, and put you back on straight street. Not so this time. That feeling of emptiness that you got when you turned to your idols then, it's just going to get worse now because now you no longer have my word to fall back on. You'll just fall down, as it says in the verse, and never rise again. It's the nail in the coffin. It's a wrap. Would we miss that, by the way? If, if, if God were to say to us, I'm taking away my word, would we, would we really miss that? Honestly. Because I feel like we have Bibles on our shelves and on our phones out the wazoo. Do we really take the abundance of God's word, particularly here in the American context, for granted? Especially considering that although we have all these Bibles, many of them go underused or maybe not even used at all. God's presence and word were taken away from us today. Would we miss it? Or would we be content to run back to our idols for comfort? It's heavy. It really is. But thankfully, there's hope. Wusa. <laughs> there is hope. There is hope. Um, look, God did give a famine of the word. For 400 years, Israel did not hear from God. But the word returned. The good news is that God broke this famine of the word with the incarnation of the word. John 1 and 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The same God that did not spare Israel from this nation-ending judgment didn't spare his own son from it either. This is why we have hope. Israel is on the verge of losing everything. But through Jesus, if we repent and bow the knee to him, we can look forward to gaining everything. Romans 8 and 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This text in Amos may have laid out the end for Israel, and it's a sad, sad ending. But it doesn't have to mean the end for us. The end of an earthly nation would ultimately bring about the hope of a heavenly kingdom. So what does that mean for us? We can yet hope in the coming kingdom of God 
Because even though God did bring a famine of his word, his word returned. And sometimes it takes ending one thing to begin a new thing. Will you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful, God, that your word hits heavy, and yet it brings hope. We thank you, Lord, that even though you are a God of justice and judgment, you're also a God of mercy and grace, and that you're slow to anger, and you're full of compassion, full of truth. And we pray, God, that you would help us in light of this text, in light of the lessons we can learn from Israel, which according to Paul were given for our example, that we would not take your word for granted, that we would not reject your word when it comes to us, but that we would receive your word with open hearts and that it would permeate our lives. We pray, God, that you would help us in our everyday lives, God, to listen, to obey, to be receptive to whatever it is that you would have for us and to walk therein. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.